Hello everyone, and welcome to this episode of Afronomics. I'm your host, Albert Zufa, Chief Economist for Africa at the World Bank. As we close out 2020 and look into 2021, one thing is abundantly clear, the world has changed. The COVID-19 global pandemic is still a large and uncertain threat with a second wave happening in the USA, in Europe, and now in some African countries. At the same time, there is hope that a vaccine will soon be widely available. In the face of grave economic downturn across the continent, we've seen innovation and action on long-needed reforms and development, especially in the digital space. While space for civic engagement has been curbed in some countries under the guise of COVID restrictions, the voice of African women, of young people, and of advocates across the continent are ringing out loud and clear. There is much to be concerned about, but so much to be proud of and so much to be hopeful for as well. A year ago on this podcast, I hosted a conversation looking back at the previous decade of progress in Africa. Today, I want to look even farther back and see what lessons from the last five decades of crisis, successes, and development can be applied now as the economic recovery gets on the way across Africa. My guest today is Dr. K.Y. Amauko. K.Y. is the founding president of the Africa Center for Economic Transformation, ASET in Ghana. And he is also the former UN Executive Secretary for the Economic Commission for Africa. KY started his career in 1974 at the World Bank, and he has dedicated his life solving the development challenges of the world's poorest countries, especially those in Africa. KY Amoko has recently published an excellent book, sort of memoir, and the title is Know the Beginning Well. And it's an inside journey through five decades of African development. I encourage you all to read it. KY, welcome to Afronomics. Thanks, Albert. It's a pleasure to be with you today. It is my pleasure. KY, your book looks back at five decades of African development. One of the most gripping passages of the book is in chapter 13, when you recall a conversation between Donald Kaberuka, then finance minister of Rwanda, Horst Kohler, the IMF managing director, and James Wolfensen, then president of the World Bank, who just passed away. Rest in peace, Mr. Wolfensen. And that conversation refers to a moment when Kaberuka says, if we were not poor, we would not come to you for help. KY. Thinking back, what do you think has really changed in this development journey and what has remained the same from your perspective? It's been five decades that I've been in this business and I've seen the up and downs, the good, the bad and the ugly, the progress Africa has made, what has prepared us, where we are and the challenges ahead. And in that conversation with... uh, that you just mentioned with Donald Kabruka and the heads of the World Bank and the IMF at that time, I brought together some African finance ministers and other development specialists to meet once a year to really take on some of the key challenges facing Africa. 
And it was in that context we were talking about Africa development, the role of the World Bank, the role of the international community, issues of uh, African ownership. And Kaburuka then said, if we were not poor, we would not need your money. In the sense that Africa needs to do more for itself. And if you can do more for ourselves and better, we will have real partnership. That was in the context. A lot has changed in the last five decades that I've been involved. We've been through structural adjustment. We've seen Africa's growth. There was a time we talked about Africa rising. Uh, we've talked about meeting the MDGs, uh, the SDGs now. So we've been through a lot. What I've learned over the years, what's changed is that you know, overall, Africa has seized the moment taking its own direction and its own course. Uh, economic development, economic management has improved considerably in many countries. Uh, the business environment has improved. Poverty has declined in some cases, but not, we still have a long way to go. But for me, what has not changed, and that's where I think the whole issue comes now, and the pandemic, uh, COVID that you've just mentioned, also has, has to draw some lessons is that the transformation of the continent or the economic transformation has not gone far enough. And we are still, as African countries, we have not had the structural transformation we need. We're still dependent on commodities. Uh, we still need a lot more to do, create jobs. So some things have changed, we've made progress, but fundamentally, the structure of our comes and transformation that we need is still, uh, we have a long way to go. I completely agree, KY, and, and we'll come back to that issue of jobs and economic transformation. You talk about your upbringings in Ghana, the optimism of the 60s embodied by Nkwame Krumah, his African unity ideals, but also the challenge of implementation. And one very, very uh, nice story in the book is the difficult relationship between Kwame Nkrumah and Sir Arthur Lewis, who is the only black person to have ever won the Nobel Prize in economics and who rushed to Ghana to help when uh, Ghana became independent in, in 57. Can you share a little bit more, you know, your perspective on what went wrong? Yeah, it, you know, it's a very interesting question. It's very fundamental. And it also comes down to what I've learned over the five decades. Arthur Lewis and Nkrumah, Nkrumah had a vision a long-term vision for Africa, a prosperous Africa, an integrated Africa. He was impatient. He had bold ideas. And that's what fascinated me and made me a real Pan-Africanist. Arthur Lewis, on the other hand, was a pragmatist and economist. That's right, an economist. <laughs> <laughs> so there, were, there was this issue between him and they shared the same goals, but in terms of how to get there, that was where the difference was. Arthur Lewis felt that, look, we need, we have this, we need to have smart policies. We need to be able to have knowledge to develop what we want to do. We need to have the institutions that can propel and develop the capacity. And we cannot rush and achieve some of these goals. So he was being pragmatic and trying to hold the Krumah back. So there were some tensions. Don't you think we actually need that Krumah's eagerness? We need that clearly. That we also need to learn from other parts of the world. What has worked, what hasn't worked. It's clear that you need bold vision. But we also need to know that transformation is a long-term process. 
on how you get there. And leadership matters a lot. So the leadership that will set a vision, allow policies to be implemented smartly. Uh, you need leadership that can also inspire others to greater heights and leadership that governs selflessly. So all those factors have to come together along with the vision to be able to make the progress that you need. So that's one of the key lessons, not only from Africa, but from other parts of the world, particularly in East Asia. You're absolutely right. And yes, you know, working on, on those countries in East Asia, one big difference is that impatience that they have and that sense of really catching up as fast as they can with the rest of the world and exceeding the rest of the world. And, and we've seen that happening. But, but again, on Lewis and, and, and Krumah's relationship, you can argue that both were right. Krumah was already, as you put, as, as you, you wrote in the book, was already discussing how to build the Africa continental infrastructure. And Lewis was then, as an economist, thinking of the budget constraint. <laughs> so you, you can argue that both were right. <laughs> and that's what I say. You need both. <laughs> you need both to make progress. The visionary, the impatient leader, and the policymaker. So how policy making? And that's the other thing you say I said in the book also. It's about ownership, the capacity to have the knowledge and to own your development agenda and to pursue the policies that will get you there. Okay, why you just mentioned a key word, ownership, and I'm sure it's going to be something we discuss in the next part of our discussion on in your, your life at the World Bank. You joined the institution in 1974. How was it like? In the book, you talk about how the institution changed during your tenure. You even speak of a cultural revolution on social development. But at the same time, you talk about a bank where race relations were not that easy. And as we speak again, there is an ongoing global task force at the World Bank against racism, born from the George Floyd horrific murder and the global movement for racial equality over the summer of 2020. Does it leave you with the impression that the more things change, the more they are the same? The bank then is very different from the bank today. When I joined, there were, there were very, very few Africans. Uh, the bank was dominated by the British nationals, French nationals, the Africa region in particular was run by, you know, people who've been in the colonial service. So it was so different. And for an African to go through the, uh, pass through the ranks was not easy. Uh, people doubted your capacity. The Africans were mostly in the Africa region. So there were some real constraints to African, and I, I describe in the book, abject racism in the then. So... Things have evolved. I know recently, uh, as I see it, you know, my understanding is that, you know, I know my understanding is the fact that many, quite a number of Africans have risen to high positions in the bank. So progress has been made. But still, I think the issue of diversity in international organization, including the bank and others, is still an issue. Absolutely right. And that's what the Global Task Force at the World Bank is trying to do, come up with uh, additional measures to really address this issue. The issue I'm sure that will come to in this instance, the role of women. How did you see, uh, you know, gender uh, evolving at the World Bank during your tenure? I was fortunate to work with some fantastic women, bright, dedicated, committed economists, and I learned so much from them. 
So later in life, uh, when I was made head of the department, I was surrounded by a lot of good women. In fact, my management team was mostly women. And we went around and we helped the World Bank put together the gender policy paper. We worked together for the World Bank's position for Beijing. They can make a difference. Two of the four people who endorsed the book are prominent women. And I was struck that you you ensure gender balance even on the endorsement of your book. <laughs> yeah, well, I learned a lot about gender issues because my mother was poor, illiterate, never went to school. And I have three wonderful daughters, all professionals. So I see a generational difference in the role of African women. Now, you mentioned people like Ellen, people like Ngozi. So you, you can see what difference women in key positions in general can also do. The book also is endorsed by people like late Wolfenson, but with the preface by, by, by late uh, Kofi Annan, with whom you had a very special relationship. Can you tell us a little bit more about Kofi? Oh, my God. <laughs> when I joined the UN, I was hired by Butchus Ghali to become head of the Economic Commission for Africa. And that's when I ran, uh, and Kofi Annan was then one of the undersecretary generals. And he later became my boss when he replaced Kigali. And we had a wonderful relationship. And we worked together on a lot of African issues. For example, the HIV crisis, forming NEPAD, uh, forming the APRM. Kofi inspired me. And there's a joke that I'll tell you. Two things. One was, you know, anytime I, I, I call him, he was under pressure. But he always take my phone call. And the first thing he would tell me in our language, KY, which means translated, there's so much to do. And I did a lot of speeches and I published a book and I was described by some friends as an optimist for Africa. And Kofi, in his foreword, called me later and said, Kofi, do you know the difference between an optimist and a pessimist? I said, no, boss. He says, both can be wrong. But the optimist dies a happier person. So that sense, Kofi encapsulated that sense of optimism, can do the belief in Africa. We fear nobody. Relentless. So he was so special. One thing that, that struck me reading the book, KY, is also how deeply rooted you are in your culture, in your language. By the way, the title of the book is inspired by a Ghanaian proverb. I have a, pro- a book of proverbs, African proverbs, that I always refer to. And this is one of my favorites. If you know the beginning well, the end shall not trouble you. Which means in life, you need to have learned from the past to be able to inform the future. It's a journey. And that's the principle I've used all my life in terms of uh, the work I've done on African development. I always look back. So what did you learn? What did you do right? How should we move forward? Whether you're talking about gender issues, whether you're talking about poverty reduction, whether you're talking about... uh, Africa regional integration, conversation we're having now, in a sense, is about that. We are here learning from that, uh, you know, past to inform the future. And what you did when you you got the Africa calling, as you put it in the book, is also part of that history we need to know well to do better in the future. Can you tell us 
those big ideas you brought when you became the UNECA chief. And you speak fondly in the book about your interactions with head of state such as Kenneth Kaunda, Meles, Museveni. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you learned on that job, but also from the perspective of these African leaders on development? Yeah, in the Africa calling, I said in my book when I, I was asked to go and take the job from the world and leave to go to Addis Ababa, my wife told me, you have to go. You've always believed in the Nkrumah vision. Now it's your time, chance to do something for Africa. So I went there and it was a great time. The sense of optimism was rising. There were some African leaders who were coming on the scene who collectively saw the, the need to do something for Africa, to put Africa where it was. People like Mbeki, Obasanjo, Melis. So I was fortunate to work with these people. And it was through that, and the issue was also an important thing, okay? so to so reform it and make it a voice for Africa to be able to work with these leaders. The time was great. And we worked together where, so on issues like how to engage the G8, how to, on the whole aid effectiveness agenda, African ownership, and bringing the leaders, and, and on issues like HIV AIDS, getting Africa to take the leadership. It was a tremendous opportunity and showed a sense of leadership and a collective sense of driving an African agenda. Those were particularly important, and I think uh, we, we, we moved the needle quite a bit. Definitely. And during that time, you guys launched the NEPAD, the new partnership for, Af- for, for African development. Can you tell us more with the hindsight, uh, KY, what do you think uh, was, was accomplished then? The background to NEPAD, quickly, was that at that time, that was in the 2000s, there was a sense that Africa needed more support, more aid to be able to meet the MDGs. The international committee was focusing on Africa. But there was a sense that, okay, but Africa got to get its act together first and drive the agenda and engage with the development community on the basis of an African-defined agenda for development. That was the case. So NEPAD, we brought together African leaders and policymakers to create NEPAD, where we defined some key areas where collectively Africa needed to work on whether it's in agriculture, whether it's in industrialization. And the idea was through that process of peer learning, also learning from each other, we can engage more collectively and holistically with the international community. So that's how NEPAD came about, yeah. It was a program of action for African countries and a framework for moving the African agenda forward. Which was a way to really enshrine the notion of ownership you mentioned earlier. Yeah, ownership, ownership, ownership. How have you seen over the years that thought really leading to more ownership of uh, development programs and development agenda in African countries? Having big ideas are fine, but it all comes down to implementation. Over time, we've come up with some grand ideas at the continental level, at the sub-regional level, but when it comes to implementation, we have fallen short for a variety of reasons. Sometimes the political commitment is not there. Sometimes the institutional capacity to drive the agenda is not there. So implementation, implementation, implementation. So it's in that context, if you take the AFCFTA, the new regional integration agenda, 
we need to learn from what has worked and what hasn't worked. So unless we figure out on the implementation, all these great ideas, we will not get the results we need. Absolutely. And, and speaking of the uh, Africa continental free trade area, we're moving into that implementation phase in a couple of weeks, January 2021. And, and for most of us, we believe this is a real opportunity to establish and reframe Africa's place in global markets, in the global economy, including really strengthening regional value chains and driving a little bit higher the share of Africa in global trade and job creation. How does that connect with your lifelong journey? Well, it connects very much because it goes back to the Nkrumah story that you and I were talking about. What drove Africa? We have many arbitrary borders. 16 of our countries are landlocked. Today, only 18% of exports are traded within Africa compared to 60% in Asia or so and 70% elsewhere. So the free trade area could really encourage specialization, higher value addition, you name it. So you are, you're hopeful? I'm hopeful, but implementation, implementation. And one thing that I'll stress, regional integration is also about institutions, institutions that will drive that. KY, the, the word institution is, is so fundamental and it's, it's clearly giving me the segue to our next uh, you know, topic of the discussion. After the UN uh, ECA, instead of taking a well-deserved retirement, you founded the Africa Center for Economic Transformation, and you have now built it to become the largest and most credible think tank in Africa, and, and you know, through which I have had the honor and privilege to collaborate with you. Tell me more. How did that idea come to you? Uh, what have been your greatest achievement? What are the challenges? That's huge. question you've asked me, and it comes down to a very big challenge we face on the continent. We talk about ownership, we talk about capacity, we talk about knowledge. These are the things drivers for growth, policies, and progress. And institutions matter. Institutions at the national level, institutions at the regional level, think tanks are one. So when I was leaving the Economic Commission for Africa, I looked back and I realized that Africa had made a lot of progress in many areas. And there was a time we were talking about Africa rising, uh, can Africa claim the 21st century? The more things changed, the more they, they were the same in terms of the structural transformation which we started this conversation. So I decided to set up a think tank devoted solely to that focus of that issue. That's how you became the transformer in chief, as I like to call you. So that was why. And I, I didn't, I consulted a lot of heads of states. As I'm leaving the ECA, this is going to be, I talked to Kagami, I talked to Melis, I talked to Ellen Johnson Selleff, we named them. They all say, right on, this is what we need. We need an institution. So that was the basis for setting the organization. And then I also read there were uh, uh, so many institutions at the national level were growing, think tanks. And that was a good thing also came with the uh, sort of good governance and the opening of uh, transparency and accountability. A lot more institutions came up. There, there are some good signs also, though, over the years on institutions, and some of them you work with very well, like the African Economic Research Consortium, the work they've done. If you look at the quality of central bank governance today in Africa and policy making, 
you have to be proud of what these guys have done compared to the dusk has come through that network. So there has been some progress in some instances. I can pick up, say, at the national level, there are some think tanks that are doing very well, supporting their governments. But overall, the institutional landscape is poor. They don't have the funding. We don't have the capacity because of African government. We rely so much funding from external sources, from foundations, from donors. It's not sustainable. So one of the issues that, you know, you've participated in some of the meetings I've had with the Transformation Leadership Panel, that's Self and in group people like Vera Songwe from ECA, Mastercard Foundation, even your own boss. We meet and we take on the big issues facing Africa and say, how can we collectively work on them? Also talking to the African development, before I agree that institutions, 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 and the COVID crisis has clearly demonstrated the value of institutions and the need for the country level, good policy making, makes it you, you have managed to bring, working with us, the chief economists of African governments together, uh, you also trying to get others to come and define what are the critical policy areas so that African countries can rebound quickly from the pandemic and get in the growth agenda. And in all these areas, governments may not have the capacity themselves. So working with institutions like think tanks becomes important. But unfortunately, we serve a crisis of funding. And how do we solve that? That's the issue I see today. What would it take for uh, African foundations and institutions and countries to actually really support these institutions of knowledge generation? If collectively all the key players come and say this is an important area, we can't develop the continent unless we as institutional capacity, unless we create more knowledge, 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 what works, what hasn't worked. I know you agreed, great uh, believer in knowledge and have the institutions. So I think once we recognize that it's a key going forward and bring the parties to the table, but also engage African leaders in this. And African leaders also have to sometimes realize that relying upon their own institutions, organizations, civil society, think that nationally is very important. Perhaps one of the things to do is also what you do with the peer learning mechanism to create values, obvious values of research and knowledge for our governments and create and build those bridges between the think tanks and the key users in top positions in in government. I know you and I have uh, been discussing this and working on this, both in terms of progress in the Chief Economist of Government Initiative, but also uh, support to African knowledge institutions. So a lot of work there, but again, the key word must be ownership. We need to own those institutions in Africa as well. I'm hopeful. I think there is uh, there, there, there's opportunities and collaborating and working and bringing uh, peer-to-peer learning. And we're doing a lot of that. And I'm very, very excited. And even the, I think this COVID uh, crisis also gives us an opportunity to do more of that. Because only through collective action and learning from each other and sharing good practices. And I've been very pleased with the way the African CDC in particular are not working. So I think there are some good signs that let's build upon that. This is clearly a moment like no order in the history of the world. 
what can we learn from the past five decades of development that you have studied so well and lived through that would be helpful for us in this post-COVID world? Well, in the year 2021, it's clear that the biggest challenge we have now is the impact of COVID. So 2021 becomes critical. First thing we need to do with some of these emergency issues, which many governments are doing and have strategies. We need to also say, don't let the crisis go to waste. That is my message. What can we learn from the past that hasn't gone and seize the moment in this crisis so as to move forward and put in place the policies that can move the economy forward and get countries to rebound onto the growth trajectory. So for some of the things we need to do, just quickly, we need to improve the business environment. We need to increase domestic and foreign investments. We need to improve our resource mobilization. Some of the issues you and I have been talking about, tax GDP ratios are so low, we cannot finance our development, given the pattern. So we need policies that in the short term will allow us to get back, but also gives us a long term. But, but there are some good signs. Digitalization offers a, a, a pathway to the future. The issue of the youth, skills training, all those are the issues. So I say don't let the crisis go to waste. Let 2021 be a stock taking and have a clear sense of what we need to do to learn from the past, to inform the future to get back on growth so that the progress we've made in the past, we can go back and push it forward. That would be my message. Absolutely. Spot on. But let me come back on that point on on domestic revenue mobilization, KY. Yes, let's raise tax to GDP ratios. But one of the lessons of the past is also that if those resources raised through taxation are not being properly used, then and we break the social contract and 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 that is uh, you know it's going to be more difficult to actually raise those taxes can you elaborate a little bit on the uh, the issue of governance and 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 more recently it's it's quite clear that we are actually not moving in the right direction when it comes to governance issues of illicit flows in issues of efficiency of spending that would definitely have to be a part of the equation moving forward for improving governance, government effectiveness and transparency. That is key. And that's why you build trust with the people. Unless we do that, we can't get out of this. Be transparent and accountable in what you do and build trust with the people. So it comes to the issue of governance, which we didn't touch upon. And governance is about creating a capable state where all these elements come together. Without that, and corruption has become a big issue. Rent-seeking has become a big issue. And you lose trust with the people. So you cannot go and raise property tax or other taxation and then when monies are not being used efficiently. And finally, I'll say that you know, one of the things I say in the book, and I feel strongly, and I'm doing further analysis on that, and I'm going to do an epilogue to the book, well, I'm going to focus a lot more on this issue of how our multi-party democracy is working in Africa. Let me close this conversation uh, on another huge topic that you know really runs through the book, which is again the role of women in African development. What, from your perspective, should be done 
to really fully bring African women perspective, expertise, and leadership to the table. A lot, a lot. And in the book, I have a full chapter on that, chapter eight, where I talk about the moral and economic imperative of investing in African women. Women account for more than 50% of Africa's population. But in 2018, according to one figure I saw, they generate only 33% of total GDP. If women farmers had the same resources, productive resources as male farmers, it's estimated that yields on farms could be as high as 30%. You, you have to incentivize them in labor, land tenure, access to finance, everything. And if you do, and also women in leadership positions, that, that is, you know, it's not just in Africa. In fact, I was reading something in the Economist magazine recently where they were talking about the European Union doing the analysis in terms of women in leadership and all that. And the statistics is clear. When 30%, a treasure of 30% of women leaders in business, or then you begin to see a big difference. Women in parliament, the girls' education, I mean, we can go on and on and on and on and on. And on. <laughs> you know that. So let me stop there. KY, with COVID-19, we are clearly in a moment like no other in the history of the world. What can we learn from these past five decades of African development you have covered to help us sell through? That in a time of crisis and based upon the lessons from the past, we need to be clear on our policies that we want to put in place. We need to implement very smart policies. Second, we need also to rely on institutions to help us through this. Third, we need smart leadership and visionary leadership to inspire the people and to build trust. Those are the things that I think are important collectively from my own experience in the past. And then the specific policies that we need to implement are also clear. How do you see the future of African leadership? You know, who are those new leaders you see that would actually be carrying, you know, this legacy and, and really taking Africa to the next level? Are you seeing that happening? I think we need to look at it more broadly. It's about the youth. It's about the present generation. And that wonderful people. So we need leadership at all levels, in all spheres of economic and social development. And I'm, I'm encouraged. When you think, for example, all the young people in the digital space, the work they're doing, it really encourages me. At the political level also, in fact, there's an initiative that I've, I'm proud to say I've, I've been a witness to, which is the leadership center that Ellen Johnson Selif has set up in Monrovia for women's leadership, where she's identified a crop of future African women leaders who are being mentored by her and by others. So those are some of the initiatives I see. And even talking about my book, one of the things we'll be doing in the next year, we're going to have a lot of meetings or webinars with some youth representatives that I've identified to have this type of conversation. So we need to engage the youth. And I think the future, and as I say in the book, I look at the future through the eyes of my grandchildren because the future belongs to them. Some of us, my journey has come to an end, but the future of Africa and the journey belongs to the youth. So whatever we do, we need to remember that. And the good news is that there are some fantastic youth leaders. We need to identify them, work with them, and inspire them and encourage them. Thank you so much. 
for sharing your insights with our listeners and for all you have done and continue to do for Africa's transformation. Thank you. It's a pleasure always working with you. Thank you. A reminder to our listeners that you can find all of our podcast episodes at worldbank.org slash Afronomics. And for more, you can follow me on Twitter at Albert Zufak to share your views, questions, and ideas. Until next time, thanks for listening and stay well.